I'm Nick Spencer, and this is Reading Our Times, the podcast that explores the books and ideas that are shaping us today. Listen with us, and we'll introduce you to conversations about the human brain, meritocracy, inequality, dementia, and human rights. It's one of the few things we agree on. Since the end of the Cold War, indeed, since the oil crisis of the early 1970s, Western societies have grown much more unequal. Economic inequality is not, as it happens, a straightforward idea, and it can be measured in different ways. Nonetheless, by pretty much every measure we have, levels of inequality are growing. So much for the consensus. Where people disagree is why. Is this an economic inevitability, or is it a political or even an ideological choice? What level of inequality is acceptable in a humane society? What can and should governments do to reverse the trend? And what will happen if they don't? No one has done more to track the course of inequality and to understand it in its different dimensions and its historical and ideological contexts than the French economist Thomas Piketty. In 2013, he published Capital in the 21st Century, a 600-page book on the relationship between capital, growth and inequality in Western societies. It was dense with graphs, data and deep historical perspective, but it was nonetheless a remarkably readable book, accessible even to non-economists like myself. He's now followed it up with Capital and Ideology, an even longer but equally fascinating book that gives the reader an even broader historical, geographical and ideological picture of the history and future of inequality. Thomas, welcome to Reading Our Times. Thank you for inviting me. One of the wonderful things about both your books is the powerful historical perspective that you bring to bear on the debate. But I want to begin more recently. Can you tell us what has happened to levels of inequality in the West over the last 50 years? In the West, but actually also in in other parts of the world, we've seen an increase of inequality within countries uh, over, over the past 40 to 50 years. Uh, w- one of the most uh, spectacular case maybe is the United States. So if you, if you take the, you know, the bottom half of the U.S. society, so, you know, the bottom 50% of the population with the lowest income, their share in, in the total national income in the United States has basically been divided by two. They used to have 20% of total income. They now have just a bit more than, than 10%. Uh, now, if, if you had a society with complete equality, the share of the bottom 50% in total income should be 50%. So now, of course, nobody is expecting this to happen, so they always have less than 50, but they used to have 20. Now they, they have 10, so this is clearly not going in the, in the right direction. And the trend is quite spectacular and has been matched by almost exactly the reverse evolution for the the top 1% of the population, which used to have about 10% of total income and now has about 20%. So this gives you a sense of, you know, the fact that distribution matters. So when we only look at the aggregate GDP or, you know, the total size of the pie, 
we are completely missing this kind of evolution, which, you know, has been very spectacular, particularly in the US. But so in, in Western Europe, we have a little bit of the same evolution, but in a less spectacular manner. And to some extent in other parts of the world as well. Are there any Western countries that are resisting this trend? Well, you know, Sweden, Germany, France have been resisting the trends a bit more than, than Britain, for instance, which is sort of intermediate between Western continental Europe and the United States. But no country has fully resisted the trend, I should say. That's important to stress. Yeah. Let's bring in the historical perspective here, because that's particularly striking. You began your career, didn't you, looking at wealth and income differentials at the beginning of the 19th century in France. And you remark in Capital and Ideology how France at the beginning of the 19th century was a very unequal society. And remarkably, it became more unequal as the 19th century went on. And that really surprised you. Why was that? Well, indeed, one of my findings is that the concentration of wealth, which, which was already very high at the beginning of the 19th century, has increased over time and was even higher at the beginning of the 20th century, at the eve of World War One. And you really need to wait until World War One, the Great Depression, World War Two, and the post-war era to see a significant decline in inequality. This is particularly striking in the case of France because for a long time, you know, the French elite uh, under the Third Republic, you know, before World War One, before 1914, like to portray uh, France as a country, you know, in love with equality. And this argument was very strongly used in order to say, okay, we don't need to introduce a progressive income tax or a progressive inheritance tax. That's, of course, very useful for Britain because this is an aristocratic society. These guys are so unequal. But for us, you know, we are a country of small property owners uh, thanks to the French Revolution. Therefore, we don't need this kind of oppressive uh, tax, and uh, which was, of course, a very convenient argument for people at the top of the distribution. But now, in fact, what we found in our data sources and in our archives is that the concentration of property in France in 1910 is almost as extreme as in Britain. And Britain is indeed particularly extreme because in the end, in both countries throughout the 19th century, you don't have any real attempt to redistribute income and wealth. And in particular, you have a tax system that is very flat. You know, it's the same tax rate for bottom income, high income, or sometimes it's even regressive because you have a lot of indirect tax which are bigger on, on lower income. So this is a, a, a legal and fiscal system that works really in favor of people at the top. And so you have an enormous level of inequality, which I think is going to contribute to also the social tension and the interstate competition, international competition, which in the end is going to lead to World War One, World yep. War Two, and a complete crisis of this political and inequality regime. Well, I want us to focus on that very important switching point at the beginning of the 20th century, where this runaway inequality begins to be addressed. But before we do, I think it's important to emphasise, as it were, to pull apart a difference here, because we've been talking about inequality, but of course, there's different kinds of inequality, aren't there? There's inequality of income and inequality of wealth. Tell us just a little bit about the difference between them. And also, were Britain and France, unequal countries in terms of income 100 years ago or in terms of wealth or both? 
both, but indeed it's important to draw the difference. So income is what you earn during a given year. So it can be income from your labor or income from your capital, you know, rent, dividend, interest in case you own capital. Uh, wealth is what you own. This is the capital stock that you own. And what we observe in practice is that in every society, uh, the inequality of wealth is even greater than the inequality of income. So the inequality of labor income can be very large but it is never as enormous as the inequality of wealth and the inequality of capital income coming from the wealth. So total inequality of income is sort of intermediate between inequality of labor income and inequality of capital income or wealth. So just to give you orders of magnitude, uh, you know, I talk about the rise of inequality in the United States where the, the share of income going to the bottom 50% dropped from 20% to 10% in recent decades. Now, in terms of wealth share, it's even more extreme than that. Basically, the bottom 50% owns nothing at all. So even today in a country like Britain or France or the US, you know, the bottom 50% would own always less than 5% of total wealth and you know, in the US, it used to be like 4%. Now it's 2%. It's, it's basically close to, close to zero. Mm. And at the top, what you had uh, in the 19th century and at the eve of World War One is, you know, 90% owned by the top 10%, you know, in a country like Britain. And in, in France, okay, it was maybe 85 to 90% owned by the top 10%. So, okay, France was a bit more equal than Britain, if you want, but, you know. But only a bit. At, yeah, at this level, you know, the thing is at the bottom, 90% own really very little. And so what I call the, the patrimonial middle class, you know, the middle 40% who are not in the bottom 50 and not in the top 10, in, in the 19th century and until World War One, they are almost as poor as the bottom 50%, you know, because all the properties owned by the top 10, so you, you don't really have a middle class. Whereas today, today, you know, there is still something like a wealth middle class. I mean, it's shrinking in size and in share of total wealth, but it's still a major difference as compared to the 19th century and, and the pre-World War One situation which is that, uh, okay, the bottom 50% still has zero, uh, you know, less than 5% of total wealth, but the top 10%, you know, used to have 90% of total wealth. Now they have only, you know, 60 or, well, 70% <laughs> in the US and 60% in Europe, say, which means that the middle 40%, they used to have maybe 10% or 5, 10% of total wealth. Now they have, you know, 30, 25, 30%. So, this is still much less than the top 10%, uh, in spite of the fact that they are four times more numerous. But typically, this is a group of, of people, you know, who own 100,000 pounds, 200,000, a few hundred thousand pounds or, or euros. And so they are not very rich, but they are not completely poor. And, and, and they don't like to be treated like poor. And, you know, it's a, so it's a, it's a quite a big change over the course of the 20th century, this emergence of this patrimonial this middle, class. middle class. But the interesting and slightly worrying thing, surely, is that if the trends of the last two generations are anything to go by, the percentage of wealth owned by the top 1% or 10% is simply going to grow and grow and grow. And we may be heading back to the balance of income and wealth 
that there was at the end of the 19th century. That's kind of one of the implications, isn't it? This is indeed the direction in which we've been going in recent decades. And, and I think this has uh, happened you know, together with a lack of um, a, a sort of general disillusion about the possibility to change this and to change the economic system in general. And I think this disillusion, you know, this lack of, of sort of faith in the possibility to change the system has a lot to do with a post-communist disillusion. It has a lot to do with the general ideological evolution of the world in recent decades. And, and I think what's very dangerous about this is that this, I believe, is contributing to lead to some kind of nationalist uh, retreat and identity conflict. Because, you know, if you, if you don't believe in the possibility of a different economic system and of different economic policy, if you tell people, okay, there's only one way, one economic policy, there's nothing that can be changed to this. And, and the only thing governments can do is to control uh, their frontiers, their identity. You know, I think in the end, what you get 20, 30 years later is a, is a political conflict that is more and more about uh, border control, basically an identity. And we've seen that, you know, uh, in, in a number of countries. And, and uh, so I think this evolution is indeed frightening. The good news and because there is a good news, which I'm trying to stress, especially in my new book, uh, Capital and Ideology, is that over the long run, you know, there's been a reduction of inequality. I mentioned this rise of the patrimonial middle class. And I think we can and we should continue in this direction. And for this, you know, we need to accept to have an open uh, democratic discussion about what we need to change in the economic system. And, I, you know, I think there are different economic systems. And that's the good news that comes from history, that, you know, there are different ways to organize the tax systems, the legal systems, the educational system. And in the end, these political decisions that we take or do not take can make a difference. And that is a, a hopeful message, and it comes very clearly through in capital and ideology, and indeed in capital in the 21st century. This isn't inevitable. It is shaped by our choices and what we value and the visions we have for our future. That shifts us on to the important question of why. We've talked about what is happening, but why it's happening and how it can be made different. What strikes me time after time after time from the graphs in both of your books is that the period, say the first 1914 to 1945, really, but then the 30 years afterwards, absolutely buck the trend. We see this remarkable reduction in inequality, both in income and in wealth. And it is very clearly linked to an age of total war, isn't it? What happens in that period and, and why does income and wealth change so dramatically? Well, it, yeah, it's more than war. Let me say right away, you know, I, I have a more uh, optimistic and, and, and positive view of what happened and, and also of the future than, than just, uh, you know, this is war and which reduced inequality. You know, I, I think between 1910 and 1980, so in the end, over the course of the vast majority of the 20th century, we've seen a, a substantial reduction of inequality. And this came through a complete change in the, in the way we organize the economy and, and a complete change in the, in the social security system, you know, the rise of uh, welfare state in general, the rise of progressive taxation of income and inheritance and, 
and wealth, uh, you know, the big investment in education, in primary, secondary education, which became very universal, uh, a different uh, uh, labor code, which giving, uh, you know, more balanced distribution of power between workers and capitalists. So, you know, it has been this constructive change in the system that really matter. Now, it is true that the balance of power that made this change possible was heavily influenced by major shocks, uh, including World War One, the Great Depression, World War Two, the Bolshevik Revolution. But it's it's more than just the war. If you take in the United States, you know, World War One was mostly a European war, and and in the United States, it, it was much less important than the impact of the Great Depression, for instance, which re- really was a defining moment, which sort of convinced uh, the public opinion that laissez-faire capitalism uh, is going nowhere. There are also examples like Sweden, which I talk about in my book, where, you know, World War One and World War Two in Sweden were not so important as for Britain or France and Germany. And still, uh, this is one of the countries where the reduction of inequality was the strongest. And what this Swedish example shows is that it was mostly through political mobilization, uh, trade union mobilization. What's very striking, in fact, is that until 1910, uh, Sweden was one of the most unequal countries in Europe. It had an incredibly unequal political system. Maybe let, let me summarize this. You know, it was a system of political right which was based on wealth and property, just like Britain or France in the 19th century. Except that in Britain and France, when voting rights were based on property, it was relatively simple. Either you are above a certain threshold and you vote, and below you don't vote. In Sweden, between 1865 and 1911, they experiment a political system where only the top 20% can vote, only the top 20% male voters, of course, can vote. And within this top 20%, you can have between 1 and 100 votes you know, depending on how much you vote. And for municipal election, there's actually no upper limit to how many votes you can have. And so you have several dozen Swedish municipalities where one individual has more than 50% of voting rights. And even corporations are allowed to vote in municipal elections uh, on the basis of the capital that they have in the municipality. If someone had said in 1910, okay, Sweden is going to become one of the most equal countries in history, you know, nobody would have believed it. And there was a huge mobilization. The Social Democratic Party took power in 1932 and put the state capacity of Sweden to the service of a completely different political project, building a welfare state, a a system of of public health, public education, which, you know, is not perfect. And and there are many things today that, that are not going so well in Sweden, but still it was much better Mm. and pretty much every other uh, system that had been experimented before that. So that's a very helpful reminder that, if you like, there are different routes towards greater equality. You rightly picked me up on the fact that it's not just war, although certainly in the in the UK it was very significantly war. I guess it was in France as well, yes. but Sweden yes. took a different path. America took a different path. What strikes me as lying at the heart of all those different paths is a powerful sense of solidarity, the sense that we are responsible for one another within our political community and that we are prepared to implement progressive taxation or whatever other legislation is needed to stop runaway inequality. And it seems to me that it's that solidarity that we lack 
today. Is that fair? Yeah, I think it is fair. You know, Karl Polanyi, who was a, an Austrian uh, economic historian of the middle of the 20th century, had, he had a way to put it, which I thought was, I was very nice. He was talking about the social embeddedness of the economy and of, of the markets. In other words, you know, we all rely on each other. You know, the sort of ideological constructions that sometimes people teach in economics that, you know, each individual is a, is a completely separate uh, entity from the, mm-hmm. from the rest of society and is just being paid. And then everybody is sort of the owner of this and does not owe anything to o- other people. You know, I think this is an ideological construction that is not at all what works in, in reality. You know, the true source of prosperity in our societies is the fact that that we have been accumulating a lot of collective uh, knowledge, a lot of collective uh, assets, which, if you think the big billionaires of today, like Bill Gates, you know, did not invent the computer by himself. You know, you have thousands and tens of thousands of engineers and, and research uh, contribution and computer science and people who didn't put their paycheck uh, at the bottom of their research article and all wealth creation is collective in its origin. And private property is something that is a notion that is created by society in order to organize society. And to some extent, it can be a useful way, a useful construction to organize individual action as long as it remained of reasonable magnitude. And as long as we control, you know, the the magnitude of, of wealth accumulation and as long as we keep in mind that this is all a, a social construction, political construction that we collectively design for the public good. But there is nothing natural in this. You know, this, this view that, you know, there is an individual natural right to a share of the pie and that, uh, you know, we can forget about everybody else. This is my property. You know, it's, just doesn't work because again, all the big innovation, all the economic prosperity come from a fantastic, uh, you know, accumulation of knowledge. And of course, nobody own or should own uh, the Earth's planet, uh, the natural resources that we use for our development, which as we know now are in finite uh, supply and, and we cannot uh, just uh, destroy this without caring about the future generation. That really does go to the heart of the issue in terms of how we conceive ourselves is going to inform our public policy, our economic policy. And as you say, so much economic thought has fixated on the individual as isolated and independent and sovereign and autonomous, when actually none of that is true. We are members of one another. We are profoundly linked to one another. It strikes me that that is quite a religious view in some ways. And that was really brought home to me by your talk of the sacralization of property in capital ideology. There's a lovely line early on in which you say the sacralization of property in the 19th century you're talking about was in some ways a response to the end of religion as an explicit political ideology. Can you explain what you meant by that? And also this really important sense of treating property and goods and wealth as if it's sacred. So, yeah, what I mean by the sacralization of property is really the view that we should never question property rights. And no matter how much property you have accumulated in the past, we should never question this. Now, this ideology becomes very strong in the 19th century 
partly because we have this long process of a transition, which I describe in my book. So in the first kind of society, the three-functional society of the, of the 18th or 17th and, and the Middle Ages, you have really two different kinds of elite, you know, the clergy that is supposed to be in charge of religious guidance and spiritual guidance, and the, the nobility that is supposed to be in charge of law and order. Both are property owners, but they are more than property owners. They also have some duties in principle to the rest of society, you know, providing spiritual guidance, providing law and order. Now, with the development of the modern centralized state and the scientific progress, of course, the legitimacy of these two groups is going to be reduced because you have other providers of spiritual services in universities, schools that, that become at least as convincing as the, the priests and the clergy. And you have a police force and professional armies that is at least as convincing as the nobility to provide law and order. And so we move to a different kind of society where explicit religious principle and religious leadership is sort of gradually uh, set aside. But property indeed becomes sort of the core belief that we, we need to trust. You know, we need, we still need some sort of defining principle. And one illustration of this in the 19th century, which I find particularly uh, telling and, and meaningful is the fact that both in Britain and France and pretty much everywhere at the time of the abolition of slavery, we decide collectively to compensate not the slaves, but we decide actually to compensate the owners of slaves for their loss of property. And this is what Britain is going to do in 1833, 1843, with a huge transfer to uh, slave owners paid by the other taxpayers in order to reimburse property, uh, slave property owners for their lack of property. You have the same in France, and even France has the incredible feature of asking IT who became independent after the, the, the slave revolt, uh, France is going to tell IT, well, look, if you, if you don't want us to invade you again, you're going to have to pay a huge public debt and IT is going to repay this until 1950. And, you know, huge yeah. payment. The philosophy was something like this. You know, all the intellectual and liberal intellectuals like Tocqueville in France or the equivalents of, in Britain will say, okay, if you start by expropriating slave owners without proper compensation, where are you going to stop? And so they were so afraid that we could question the religion of property that they prefer to compensate uh, slave owners. And, and I think, you know, it's interesting because today we don't have explicit slavery anymore, but I think we still have the same risk that we sacralize uh, property rights, you know, including for ownership over uh, natural resources, which we know, you know, we should keep in the ground to a, to a large extent. Or sometimes you also have, you know, new property rights over uh, knowledge, over books, which, you know, some people, some companies sometimes, you know, want to accumulate without any limit. You have good uh, principles about uh, justice, etc. but people are never going to be able to agree about mm. where to stop in terms of redistribution. Therefore, uh, you know, your nice principle, we are going to forget about them and we are not going to do anything. And we should yes. not even start thinking about any possible redistribution because that's too complicated. We will not know where to stop. We will end up in complete chaos. And I can understand their point, except 
And that's my, my general conclusion, that we can use historical experience and, and the fact that we have used in the past various levels of, of fiscal progressivity and redistribution of income and wealth and in order to trust, you know, democratic uh, deliberation uh, to, to find the right point where to stop. Much of what Thomas Piketty said about wealth and income reminded me of Catholic social teaching. And as if by magic, a couple of days after we spoke, Pope Francis released his third encyclical letter, which touched on a number of similar issues. I spoke with Anna Rowlands, St Hilda Associate Professor of Catholic Social Thought and Practice at Durham University, about this. Anna, firstly, can you tell me what Catholic social teaching actually is? Catholic social teaching is usually used as a phrase to describe a series of letters written by the popes um, from 1891 onwards, addressing a range of social, political and economic issues, including the big thought forms of the modern era, liberalism, capitalism, um, etc., And it's an attempt to bring the older tradition of the church from the early church period and the medieval period around thinking about the social nature of the human being and the kind of economic and political consequences that flow from that into an industrial and then now a post-industrial and global context. So economics has been absolutely central to it since day one, hasn't it? What does it say about property rights? So first of all, you're absolutely right that economics is absolutely key to this. And it says some really interesting and challenging things about property rights. What it says is that there is a natural right to own property, but it's a secondary rather than a primary principle. So the first principle is what's called the universal destination of goods, meaning that the goods of the created world, all the created goods of the world, should be available for the use of all. And that use is both in terms of survival, but also flourishing and development. So it's not just a kind of mere um, sort of scarcity survival set of instincts, but rather the goods of the earth are meant for the good, the survival and the development of all. Therefore, private property is a right because it allows us to secure that survival and it allows us to gain the stability that we need in order to create and flourish in the world. But it is always with what's called a social mortgage. So how you utilise those goods needs to be to the benefit, not just of yourself, but of the wider common good. Catholic social teaching is always being updated, if that's the right word, added to by new encyclical letters. And we've just had a new encyclical letter from Pope Francis, his third, called Fratelli Tutti on Fraternity and Social Friendship. Pope Francis is seen, at least in wider circles, as quite a radical figure. Is he saying anything particularly new or radical or different in the new encyclical? That's a really interesting question. Technically, on the economic stuff, no he isn't. There's nothing new in it at all. In fact, it's a repetition of exactly this point about the problem with inequality, that inequality effectively frustrates the development and the survival um, of human beings. It cuts against the common good, so it makes it more difficult to have a creative and just social whole. And he's very, very clear that inequality is the key social evil. And, and he reiterates this, but it is only a repetition, that the universal destination of goods is the primary principle of the social order. Now that for a liberal mindset is really, really challenging and difficult to get your head around. And in the kind of conversations I've been having with people just in the first week since the promulgation, the launch of the encyclical, that's the bit that's sticking in the throat. One of the things you mentioned earlier on, and it's 
really important to emphasize this is that even though these encyclical letters and are written by the popes and they're mainly read by Christians. They're intended to have a much wider audience, aren't they? And it is the case that Catholic social teaching hasn't simply been contained within the church over the years, but has been deployed in real life political and economic situations. Can you give us one or two examples of that? Yeah, absolutely. And that's certainly true. The encyclicals are addressed to the whole world and they're meant to galvanise all people of goodwill and reason. And the principles are meant to be rational principles as well. So one example would be around, say, living wages, which takes the medieval idea of a just price and it transforms it into a wage labour economy setting, into a question of what is reasonable compensation for the selling of your labour. So there's real potential then, isn't there, for those who are of a thoroughly secular mindset, maybe even anti-religious in some regards, to find common cause and co-belligerence with Catholics with whom they wouldn't share many other ideas. But on these particular issues, when it comes to equality, when it comes to economic fairness and justice, there's real potential for co-belligerence, isn't there? Oh, yeah, hugely so. And that's precisely what Pope Francis calls for in the document. So he talks about the role of grassroots movements. He talks about grassroots movements as social poets who recreate the whole. Now, he's very against the concentration of wealth. He's not against the generation of wealth, but he's against the concentration of wealth. And this is a really, really old theme. Wealth is meant for the early church fathers to flow through a community, to be like a river rather than a stagnant pond. So I think there's real kind of cross-fertilisation um, and sort of grassroots movement work that can be done around challenging inequality, the concentration of wealth, the unusual paradoxes of how wealth is developed in our current economic system. Well, I want to draw our conversation to a close by looking forward. And we've established that the levels of inequality, both in terms of wealth and income, are increasing. They're heading towards the direction they were 120 years ago, which was very problematic in lots of different ways. And we've also established that it is possible politically and ideologically to address that. And different countries have addressed it in different ways in the past. I want to explore as we close how we do that, but by picking up on those two key themes we've talked about, solidarity and desacralizing property. How do we build solidarity and how do we desacralize property in the 21st century? I, I think, you know, the difficult part is to manage to build a new sense of solidarity, both at, you know, local level and at a very transnational and, and global level. And that's what we need to articulate. And, you know, there's nothing new here. Some people could say, okay, we are just going to return to the nation state of the post-war war to era and we are going to have more redistribution at the level of the nation state. Now, that's one possibility. I think a better solution, but which is also more complicated, is to try to organize solidarity at a transnational level, uh, you know, European level in particular, international level more generally. And so I spend uh, quite a lot of energy in my book to try to think about the possibility of, of new form of democratic socialism and democratic federalism, you know, allowing different countries to put together some uh, fiscal decision in some joint assembly, not to decide everything at a federal level. But if you think of having a, a common playing ground for the most powerful economic actors and having a, a tax on multinationals and etc., you know, this needs to be done at a pretty high level. And, and I think, you know, the problem 
we have to face it. The European Union so far, you know, has been mostly a political force to some extent, unfortunately, to protect, you know, the market and the people who move their capital around and, and the most powerful economic actors rather than, than a force that will facilitate the reduction of inequality and the regulation of capitalism. And now maybe this is going to change, you know, what we see with uh, the new European recovery plan that, that, you know, you see this sense of solidarity which has developed with a very special circumstance, which is uh, the COVID crisis we have to face today, where suddenly many people in Germany in particular realized, okay, if Italy and Spain are going to fall because of the COVID crisis, you know, that's just not fair because, you know, people are not responsible for an epidemic to fall on them. And in the end, that's going to be bad for all of us, you know, including for German companies because we are all in the same economy. And I think it will be better to move to uh, majority rule decision making within a European uh, assembly for the countries that, that want to move in this direction. These are complex challenges. And, mm -hmm. and this is a general point I'm trying to make in my work, in my book, is that inequality, it's more complicated than just, uh, okay, there's a group of rich people out there who don't want uh, equality. And if we can just get rid of them, everything will be simple. Well, no, things are not so simple. You know, there's a problem of how you organize a vast political community of millions, hundreds of millions, or, you know, billions of humans to fight global challenges like inequality, global warming. And there are ways, but every citizen needs to participate to this. We cannot leave economic issues to economists, and we cannot leave these complicated issues to small groups of, uh, of experts that will solve the problem for us. We cannot leave economic issues to economists. I can't think of a better place to end. The books are called Capital in the 21st Century and Capital and Ideology. Thomas Piketty, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Next week, I'll be speaking to Nigel Bigger about his book, What's Wrong with Rights? So often in, in rights discussion, rights talk, rights rhetoric, there's not much consideration of cost. So there's a kind of, is it virtue signalling? It's an idealism that could devalue the currency. Reading Our Times comes to you from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team also includes Abby Allison, Lizzie Stanley and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. You can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people discover the podcast. <laughs>